Hello and welcome to the Teaching Drama Podcast. I am your co-host, Kyle A. Thomas. And I am your other co-host, Seth Wilson. Seth, how are you? I am doing well. How are you? Are you uh, enjoying your summer? So far, so good. I just started up uh, teaching my directing course, and so that's a lot of fun. I've got a few students here over the summer. We've got some shows going on here at Missouri State University as well as part of what we call tent theater, which should be fun. So lots of things to look forward to, a lot of fun stuff going on. What about yourself? Are you are you enjoying the, the summer vacation? Yeah, um, I'm actually getting ready in a couple of weeks to go to a theater festival in Alaska. So I'm preparing well, for wait, wait what is the, what theater festival is this in alaska uh it's called the last frontier theater festival uh although i think they're they're renaming it the valdez theater festival uh and it's a, a playwriting development workshop week-long workshop conference um and uh my wife had a play that uh, that is being performed as a part of it and so i'm gonna go um and uh be there to see the play but also I'm performing in a couple of the the shows that are going on there as well. So, oh, that's cool. That. Yeah, yeah, it should Excellent. be very I've fun. Never been, I've never been to Alaska, and I really, really would love to go. Yeah, I have not been since I was ten, so I'm very excited to oh, return. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's jump into the uh, trivia question for this episode. So I all think right. it's my, I'm up. I'm up today, ready to stump you. All right. Um, all right. So so today's question is about Kabuki theater, Kabuki theater in Japan, which was uh, first kind of started in the late, latter part of the 16th century. The the woman who developed this particular style of theater, it was Izumo no Okuni, and she famously was doing these kind of dance performances uh, that drew the attention of the populace and became very popular and very excited uh, before it eventually became kind of an imperial Japanese form of theater that was performed regularly at the court. But my question for you is, where were the first performances of Kabuki held? I'll give you a hint. They were not in a theater. They were outside. So I'm looking for like a kind of like a geographical space location, not, not, not a city, but like a a feature, a geographical, geographical feature. Oh, this is a good question. And I really feel like I should know this because I feel like I learned it when I was studying for my exams. Uh, and I am going to disappoint uh, some of my former professors. Um, held, uh, uh, I am going to guess uh, the the marketplace. Good. That's a good guess. I, I uh, that's what I would. That's what I would have gone for if I didn't know it. If I hadn't have looked it up before this particular episode. But it was not the marketplace. It was in a dry bed of the Kamo River in Kyoto. So this oh. was. They were performing in a dry riverbed, which I I think maybe actually ties to commerce in some way. Hmm. Um, I think they were using the river. You know, the people of this town were uh, of Kyoto were using the river in some way, or at least it was a frequent gathering spot. And so that's why. It was uh, like the first performances were were well received by the folks of Kyoto at the time. But yeah, it was a dry riverbed of the Kamo Kamo River in Kyoto. Oh wow! Well, that's a, a really interesting fact, and uh, and I would be interested to learn more about that. I'm going to look into it some more to figure out exactly why this was the spot. Yeah, yeah, I I think that would be. I, I found some fascinating stuff on it, and I I was kind of like ah, I was re just reading over some stuff and thought that'll make for a perfect question to that was a good set. question. I'm, yeah, I'm you so got me. I, I got you. <laughs> okay, well, well, today's episode is on intimacy, direction, and coordination, and I am so excited to actually introduce our guest today because. Uh, they're good friends of mine. I've known them for a while, and they're lovely, wonderful, talented, amazing people who have um, some really, really great insight for these practices, which I think are just absolutely necessary for theater at all levels. So I, I will introduce our guest today. Dr. Jessica Steinrock is the CEO of Intimacy Directors and Coordinators, and also works professionally as both a certified intimacy coordinator for TV and film, and a certified intimacy director for live performance. She holds a PhD in theater from the University of Illinois, where her dissertation centered on the emergence of intimacy professionals in entertainment. Her recent intimacy coordination credits include Moxie and Never Have I Ever on Netflix, Animal Kingdom on TNT, and Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu. And also we have Zev Steinrock. He is a professional actor, fight director, and certified intimacy director who works professionally across the country. 
Zeb is also an assistant professor of stage combat acting and movement at the University of Illinois. As a certified teacher with the Society of American Fight Directors and a certified intimacy director with intimacy directors and coordinators, he specializes in working with university faculties to help them create and implement safe protocols for heightened physical work, both in the classroom and in performance. So welcome Jessica and Zev to the Teaching Drama Podcast. It's good to have you guys. Woo -woo. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course, of course. So let's just start off since uh, intimacy direction is kind of the main focus of this ep episode. Uh, I, I don't, I, I, this, as you know, I've only got just kind of a cursory glancing knowledge of this. Uh, tell me a little bit about what is intimacy direction? Give us an idea about what you guys do as intimacy directors and coordinators. Yeah. So intimacy direction and intimacy coordination is essentially the practice of, um, choreographing a scene of intimacy, advocating for actors, and being a liaison um, between everyone in production who needs support, making sure we have active and informed communication and that consent can happen for the purposes of creating a scene of intimacy ethically and safely. That's hopefully really artistically amazing as well. Um, so that's that's kind of what we do. And I'll also just quickly define a scene of intimacy when we speak about intimacy, because, you know, Theater is intimate, but intimacy specifically in the terms of intimacy direction and coordination deals um, with any kind of simulated sex, hyper exposure or nudity. So a line for me is like simulated genital contact, um, heightened intimate physical contact um, or exposure or nudity. So that's what we mean when we're talking about intimacy specifically. There's obviously some gray area there, but I uh, wanted to be really clear about that. No, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Um, so I, I'm really interested in how did this all come about? Like, what is, you know, it, it's, it's, I, I remember when we were together in grad school and, and you were beginning your work on this and we worked together kind of briefly in a workshop and I was just blown away with how amazing it was to have an intimacy director there helping me out through this, this complicated scene. And despite, you know, my knowledge of directing, it was so much, better to have you there, Jessica, to, to help guide not only the actors through the scene, but me as well as a director, and I learned a ton. But what, what how did this all come about? Like, where did this come from? Like, when did this start? This all seems still very fresh and very new. So what's the history of this? Yeah, I mean, and as you know, right, writing a history of something is a complicated political statement, right? Um, and, and that histories are, are super nuanced and super complex. Um, so I can speak a little bit to um, some of the nuance that I experienced, um, but like the foundations of intimacy work are were developed well beyond what we now know is like the professionalization of the role of intimacy work, right? Directors like yourself have been doing intimate like types of intimacy work for a long time. Costumers have been a huge um, advocate for safe and consensual practices and costuming. Um, we see have seen stage managers take on some of this role. So these concepts and ideas have been floating around and ideas about power and consent and agency. Um, you know, we see tons of theory being written on this for a long, long time. Um, we can kind of see it start to crystallize into what intimacy direction is in around 2006 with Tonya Cena's uh, MFA thesis. And this is from Virginia Commonwealth University. And it's really one of the first times we see intimacy choreographer referred to as a singular title and a specified role in the process of uh, creating a piece. Uh, and then between 2006 and 2016, Tonya and a number of other practitioners were creating their own methods, talking to one another, um, chatting about it. We start to see intimacy director pop up a few more times um, in professional theaters. A lot of times it's also partnered with the violence director. So we see um, fight and violence design, I think, um, Rachel Flesher uh, at Steppenwolf University was one of the first times we really see fight slash violence design or fight slash violence director um, as its own. I mean, fight um, slash intimacy. Oh, sorry, it's fight slash intimacy. Thank you. Uh, as its own role. Um, and then we saw Tony Asina at uh, the Stratford Festival in Canada, which was one of the largest publicized instances of having an intimacy director as its own specified role. Um, and then that in combination with all of the national conversations that were happening in 2015, 2016, 2017, we're talking Me Too, Time's Up, Harvey Weinstein, you know, all of which have long histories in and of themselves as well. Um, you know, Me Too dating back to 2006 and then going viral in 2016. Everything kind of collided 
and we have intimacy work and it has just picked up really rapidly since 2016. Uh, how did you guys get into this? What's your history with it? I'll let Zev answer that question. So the um, one of the key figures that Jessica mentioned, Tony Asina, is uh, very much connected to the stage combat community in the United States. And a lot of the work that, and, and the way that the intimacy director was modeled initially was off of the same model as the fight director, thinking of taking these heightened moments and turning them into choreography that can be written down, that can be managed by uh, an, a fight captain or an intimacy captain or a stage manager and like approaching from those things, having similar style touch points of, we should choreograph this early, we should review that choreography in tech, um, like those kinds of patterns, those were all modeled off of the stage combat community as the fight director role, which was a really great way to enter because people kind of already knew what to do with that or what to expect, what meetings to invite that person to. Um, so that's uh, sort of where it started. And I have forgotten the question. <laughs> so Tonya and Zed. Oh yeah, how did we get into yeah. this? That's the question. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm, I'm very good friends with Tonya personally. Um, and a lot of, and uh, one of the other leaders in the, aside from Jessica, she's underselling herself, but um, one of the other leaders, uh, Alicia Rodas is uh, also a fight director with the Society of American Fight Directors. Uh, Alicia and Tonya together um, did uh, much of the public pioneering of this work. Um, and uh, they're, they're professional colleagues and friends of mine. Um, uh, in fact, I married Alicia to her husband. I officiated their wedding. <laughs> um, Ooh, okay. Yeah. So like the, this combination of like knowing some of the people personally and professionally already that were doing this work has, has put both of us uh, very close to the front lines of the public growth of this movement. Um, that said, uh, theoretically and professionally, the concepts that are at the core of intimacy direction were things that, uh, that, I was doing to some degree and were the things that Jessica in her, uh, in her graduate career uh, decided to dig into and research. Um, and so like, as Jessica was saying, like intimacy directors didn't really invent consent. They just crystallized all of the things, the patterns and um, practices that were working and collated them into a distinct role so that there can be an expert in the room that knows how to do this well. I'll also speak a little bit to my, my specific path, which was um, I come from a world of improv comedy and stand-up. Um, and so for me, some of my early questions were about how do we navigate spontaneous non-scripted work in a consensual way. Um, and so those were my early questions when I first met Tonya was not necessarily about scenes of intimacy, it was about consent in non-scripted performance. Um, and so I love comedy, I love jokes, I love um, I love blue humor. Um, I'm, you know, I, I think it's it's all, <laughs> It's all lovely. And you're good yeah. at it too. You were, I have to say, I've seen your stand up <laughs> and it was very good. I, I immensely enjoyed it. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Um, you know, but I, I've always thought about like, if we're going to engage in that kind of comedy, how do we do that in an ethical and respectful way? How do we do that in a way that makes us feel confident about what we're putting out into the world? You know, and um, there's things that I, uh, jokes evolve and you understand them deeper or your lived experience gives you a new lens. And so what's our analysis for how do we, how do we create work that we're proud of? Um, and how do we talk about that stuff in a way that doesn't censor, but makes us all um, more empowered to move in choice about uh, how, we're, how we're working as artists? Yeah, and the last thing I want to add to the like the background of how we ended up involved in this is uh, to note that um, before the intimacy director became a codified role, a lot of times if a production was looking for someone to choreograph a moment of, of a sexual encounter, uh, they ended up turning to a fight director because it was kind of the closest related skills. Uh, like I, I distinctly remember being uh, I was fight directing a show. It was, um, the show is uh, In the Blood by Susan Laurie Parks. Uh, and there's violence in that. And there's a, there is a murder at the end of the show. And, uh, but there's also an oral sex scene. And I was asked to choreograph that. Um, and it's because to achieve that moment, 
it was a lot of the same kinds of tools used for unarmed stage combat, where it's about trying to get the audience to believe that they're seeing something right in front of them that they're not, that's not actually happening, or getting them to not see something that's right under their nose. It's like sleight of hand magic is kind of at the core of unarmed stage combat. So same principles of understanding angles and masking and, uh, and redirection of attention and layering in sounds and uh, mimed gestures that imply other things. And so they're historically fight directors have been tasked with doing this work Specifically I'm, that choreography. Specifically component. the choreography component. And I am, I have to say, as a fight director, now with different training that I've gotten through my career as an intimacy director, I'm thrilled, thrilled that fight directors do not need to be asked to do this. <laughs> uh, because it like, yes, there's it's it's before there were intimacy directors, that was the closest thing, but it is not the same thing. So this sort of brings us to a question. Um uh, you've talked a lot about the theory in the background that animates a lot of this practice. And um, I'm curious about what in practice in the room this looks like. Um, you know, it's possible that a lot of our listeners have worked on shows with intimacy or, um, you know, moments of, of um, th that at least touch on um, intimate contact. And, and so how do you go about creating this space where consent can be given? And how do you work with a director and the actors um, you know, to, to bring this, uh, the entire production team to a point where what's happening is safe and also um, adheres to the, the, the logic of the, the performance. So my favorite framework for intimacy uh, are, are the five pillars of intimacy. And uh, in practice, intimacy can look a little different, right? I mean, every, directors work differently, fight directors work differently, everyone works differently. And it's all about the individuals in the space and what they need to do their best work. Um, but the five pillars of intimacy direction are context, consent, communication, choreography, and closure. And that's a basic roadmap. We start with what's the story? What's the context? Who's in the room? We communicate about that story. We, um, we look at what consent is. We talk through what, what components need to exist for consent uh, to occur. We, uh, we use choreography to, to say, okay, great. How, how are we feeling about shoulder contact today? And that choreography allows us to get that consent. And we close it all off with this element of closure, meaning that we contain the emotional experiences that we are having to imaginary stimuli so that we're not carrying with us the feelings of love or the feelings of hurt or the feelings of pain that were imagined in the story, that we're able to close that off and live our lives and then come back to the work when it's time to do so. So that is like the briefest of, of outlines of what intimacy can look like in practice is following those five pillars. Do you want to like kind of add anything more to Yeah, I will say um, on the, I think uh, I, I'm, I'm always the whenever we're doing workshops about intimacy work, I'm always the most interested in this closure pillar um, because it seems like it it's not about intimacy, but it is so deeply connected to sustainable, healthy, emotional work. Uh, and it also helps us understand the difference between consent that's given in the context of the work we're doing versus the rest of our lives together. If I have consent to touch my scene partner on a particular part on their body, as soon as we've practiced closure, it's really now clear to everyone that that consent doesn't apply. Now we're not working. So that doesn't apply, you know. Uh, yeah, those boundaries those, are shifting for each specific situation that we're in. And yeah. so we also have to add that component of being aware of what that shift is and how we move from container to container. So having the, having the language and the practice to navigate these conversations, to know what questions to ask, to have practice asking them, uh, to have practice navigating when we discover what we thought was going to happen isn't working and we need to change something in the moment. Those are the skills that, that are central to what the training has become and what it is, what it will eventually just be a basic part of all theater training. I deeply believe that. Um, and then uh, to go back to Seth's question about like, what does it look like working with the director? I think a great example to bring up is uh, why Kyle has experience with this, which was uh, a kind of like a, a theoretical experiment that we ran with Kyle um, for a stage management course. 
uh, where we had... You were experimenting on me? Is that what you're telling the audience? It yes. was research. It was research. <laughs> I did give my consent for it. I do. Exactly. I have to admit. Um, yeah, no, we, we worked, uh, we created two uh, mock rehearsal rooms with actors, both of which doing intimate content. Um, I don't even remember what, what the scenes were at this point, but uh, it was, it was the flick. The oh, you the were doing that flick. The scene you were doing yeah. was the flick. It wasn't yours about, it was like paper, it was origami, something. Oh yeah, it's the Rajiv Joseph play. Uh, oh, anyway, I don't remember. Yeah, the scene, remember the the scene ultimately was a kiss. It, there was a kiss scene and a- uh, Simulated genital contact a scene. Simulated genital contact scene with the two different scenes. And it was uh, Kyle and Jessica worked together as director and intimacy director. And I worked uh, as intimacy director with one of the other professors at the University of Illinois, uh, Sarah Wigley. And uh, what was so cool about that experience was the fact of the great difference between Kyle and Sarah as directors drastically changed what the role of the intimacy director in that room became. And we got to see two really vastly different experiences, but both completely upheld the five pillars that Jessica was talking about. They manifested very differently in Kyle and Jessica's room. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth conversation, Kyle jumping in with an idea, Jessica jumping in with an adjustment to make that idea happen. Right in the midst of them working, Kyle would like get inspired about something. It was like the two actors, Jessica and Kyle, all up on their feet, all moving, like a lot of interplay back and forth. In the room with Sarah and I, Sarah had started with this idea of what the scene really should be and then completely stepped back and wanted me to just make the thing, choreograph the thing. And then when we had something to show her, show it to her, she would give some feedback. I'd go back to work for a while. Um, and I can say as a fight director, I've experienced that same thing in the world of fight direction, depending on the kind of director and collaborator you're working with, the, the specific roles and the way they manifest adapt. But what is core and fundamental underneath it the safety of the actors, the clarity of the story, the consent of everyone involved, those things don't change. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add on to that uh, since we've, we're talking about it, that I was blown away. I had, just based upon the conversations before we started that workshop, I had some idea about what to expect in regard to your work. And when you just jumped in and you were building on what I was doing, but doing it in a way that had this really clear language and these really clear practices that just, I, I felt safer as a director. I felt a lot more comfortable working with those actors and even to a degree, you know, pushing them to realize the, the theatrical importance of this moment and, and, and it's bearing on the rest of the play and why that, that scene had to be done the way that it was. Um, everybody just felt so much more comfortable and, and it made the scene so much more powerful. So I'm I'm here to kind of advocate, you know, advocate and speak for the the work of intimacy directors and and the importance of having that in the rehearsal room. But I want to kind of switch gears just a hair. Uh, speaking about kind of language and, and terminology and the precision of those things, can can you, do you guys like have a different definition potentially, or can you define for us consent? I, I know that's a word that we use a lot today, uh, especially in educational context. You know, we are teaching young people. Uh, at, at every level now about the necessity and importance of consent. But I think it's important to step back and maybe define what that is, particularly as it, as it pertains to the work in the rehearsal room. Yeah, absolutely. So my favorite definition, hands down, is uh, from Planned Parenthood, and it's an acronym called FRIES, and it stands for Freely Given, Reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. Uh, and everybody loves fries and everybody loves consent. Um, but, but really, it, consent is a contractual agreement between two parties about what they want or are willing to engage in. But the only way that we can have that agreement is if it is freely given, meaning um, we're aware of the power dynamics in the situation. Um, I like to say that yes means nothing unless no is an option. Right, because if we're all assuming that everyone has to say yes all the time, we're in this culture of yes and, then when someone says yes, we don't really know if they actually mean it. And so by creating space for no, we actually empower the yes to mean something. Um, so, so that's that freely given component. Reversible is that an actor can change their mind, right? They can try something out and then be like, oh, not for me. And reversible allows us to explore and be uh, brave, uh, brave and inspired actors. 
Um, it's informed, meaning we know what's being asked of us, right? Like we ask actors all the time, um, are you okay with nudity? Well, I, I don't know, in what context? Are other people there? Is it fluorescent lighting? Um, how close is the audience, right? Like these are all really important questions that will you know, determine my answer of, am I okay? Then there's enthusiastic, meaning, you know, we the absence of a no is not the same thing as a yes, right? That that yes has to be present, has to be vocalized. Um, I oftentimes think of this as also grounded confidence because everybody's enthusiasm looks a little different. Um, and then that last one specific is your boundaries are allowed to shift with each specific situation. It's okay if you want to kiss one person and not someone else. It's okay if you want to wear a skirt in one production and don't want to in a different one. Um, that your boundaries are allowed to be different for different situations. So that's like a basic rundown. Um, and Planned Parenthood has some amazing, amazing resources. Also, Northwestern University has another acronym that's called CAVPO. Highly rec it's K-A-V-P-O. Highly recommend uh, anyone looking. Not as catchy as fries. Not as catchy. Um, <laughs> but it's also- Yeah, I'm with you. I like fries. Um, yeah, right. But those, those are some really great, uh, really great ways to look at what consent is and how it functions. I, I think this kind of pivots into um, something that I think about a lot uh, in this area. Um, I remember uh, as an undergraduate, uh, the training very much being, um, the idea was that your goal was to get a job. And your goal, like your, like, just tell them you'll do whatever, you know, like, just say yes, and then figure out a way to be okay with it. <laughs> and whether that means like, you have two weeks to learn to play the guitar, or you have two weeks to like become comfortable doing something uh, physically that you're, that you never thought you would do. Like, that's the, the nature of the, the job of the actor is what I, that was very much, um, the cultural attitude of the 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 way that I was trained, and I feel like um, that is changing, thank goodness. Um, and so I'm curious about like both on a, a specific level, like for a production, um, how this makes for a better production, but also how you you feel like this is changing the theater ecosystem for the better. And you know, some of these are obvious because I feel like acting is a very difficult and often exploitative field, but um, I'm curious to, to get your perspective on that as well, because I feel like it is a welcome shift that I'm seeing in a lot of places. Yeah, so I would love to hear what you think about that. I love this question because um, my, my company, Intimacy Directors and Coordinators, one of, our, one of our missions is to create a culture of consent in which intimate stories can be told with safety and artistry. And I think that what you're speaking to is exactly what this mission is, is that if we're not practicing consent in every scene, and that's not a skill we're building in, in the way we work everywhere, then by the time we get to a scene of intimacy, you know, we're going to be in trouble. That we have to be practicing saying yes and no and listening to boundaries and talking about consent in scenes that don't feel as high pressure. Because once we get to a scene of intimacy, that high pressure and that, um, right, that's no longer freely given. Um, so, so this cultural shift that intimacy work is having in the conversation has been really profound. But I firmly believe that we won't see truly successful intimacy direction and coordination until we have built a stronger culture of consent that inside that is where we can get really great intimacy coordination because the director, the actor, and the intimacy professional are all speaking the same language. Um, and I, if you might have something else to say, but I'm also curious uh, for you to talk about how it's affecting uh, violence work and fight work and how intimacy has changed that. Yeah, so the exactly what Jessica was saying where the um, intimacy directors didn't invent consent. It's critical <laughs> to doing scenes of intimacy safely but it doesn't apply only to intimate scenes. And in fact, it's one of the biggest changes uh, and it's the uh, focus of my tenure research uh, is how uh, the, the practices and principles that have emerged through intimacy direction uh, so deeply also apply to stage combat. Uh, that conversations about consent were not at all a part of my training as a fight director. That said, they are absolutely critical to doing violence ethically. They're critical. And it's all of the same principles of consent that, that the actor who's being asked to potentially do a scene where they murder someone, that they consent to telling that story, to participating in that event. And not just the person who's doing it, but everyone on stage that's witness to it. 
the stage manager who's at the call board that has to watch the scene over and over and over again. All these things are critical to creating a safe workplace where you are not emotionally damaged by the work you're doing and that you can go home after every rehearsal and, you know, make your late night burrito feeling great, you know? Um, And so it totally applies to stage combat Uh, in particular. I mean, it applies to everything that we do, but in stage combat and uh, fight direction, what it has in common with intimacy direction is that they're only just about always uh, heightened scenes where the stakes are high. It's just where those come up. And so the uh, risk of coercion or the risk of emotional damage or the risk of psychological injury is just simply higher because of the content we're working with. Something else uh, about the question that you asked Seth that I wanted to pull to is like, how is this affecting the industry at large or the activity of theater making at large is um, in order for consent to exist, it needs to be freely given, meaning like you have to be able to say no. If you can't say no or feel that you can't say no, then it is not consent and it would not stand in a court of law. And we are in an industry where every single job you do is also an interview or an audition for the next job, theoretically. Even hanging out at the pub, as they say. Um, I miss pubs. I miss pubs. Oh my God, we've been at home (laughs) for too long. Hanging out at the bar with those colleagues after the show is still, it's an informal professional network all the time. And so there is great, there's a very high chance and it would come as no surprise because of how high of a chance it is. There's a very high chance that in any moment you feel like you need to be performing. You need to be saying yes. You need to be doing what you need to, to book the next gig. Uh, And that that pressure might lead you to say yes to something that you're not enthusiastically in favor of. So where the shift is, is making the idea that consent is necessary and having these consent-based conversations so frequently in every part of what we do is really the only way to combat that because the, the networks aren't going to become less informal. They will always be this. It's always going to be a who you know kind of industry. Um, But if we can create, reinforce more experiences with every artist that is involved in theater, that they will be asked if they consent to the thing, and they will be able to say no to it, and they won't lose the job because of it, then people will be more willing to actually declare their real boundaries. And we will get more adept at navigating those boundaries, and that a, a no doesn't mean the work stops. A no is like the best answer we can get in theater because it forces us to be creative. We are so, so used to operating inside of boundaries. Name one production you've ever worked on where you have had all the money you want for it. <laughs> it we're, we're, yeah, you, you, we'll, we'll have to end the podcast because we'll right? just inside. Yeah, so like yeah, we're totally exactly. used to the idea of like, well, here's what we want to do and here's what's available to us. How can we still tell the story with what's available to us? The script also says, these are the words you can say right. and no other words. Yeah. There's this thing yeah. called the edge of the stage that you really <laughs> shouldn't walk beyond, right? We're used to being in boundaries all the time. And, it, and this idea of how you treat other human beings being part of those boundaries, that's, that's not too hard to adjust to. It might feel yeah. awkward to consider, but, it's, but we are very practiced at hearing a no and pivoting to a different way of getting the job done. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that you're absolutely right that that these boundaries are the birth of creativity and so yeah i I love that way of thinking about it it's i think that's crucial in terms of kind of a mental paradigm shift yeah my first idea of how to tell a story is never the most interesting one it's just the first one exactly you've got it's got to be and yeah it really it it brings everything back to the collaborative experience that theater relies upon as well that we all in order to solve these problems and to to make sure that we are infusing creativity into the the boundaries that we have that we're doing it all together and as a team and with respect so i love that but building on that um you know we're talking a little bit about um theaters and 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 organizations that have maybe more resources, so professional theater, university theater, that sort of thing. But I also want to think about and include 
those out there who are, are don't have as many resources, especially our high school teachers and, and those who teach at levels lower than that, uh, who probably don't have the resource to hire an intimacy coordinator or director for their production. Uh, maybe they themselves may not have or, or are unable to get a lot of training in those areas. So like, can you guys give us some, some tips, some help uh, for those folks out there who may be in those situations where they don't have those resources? Are there some good things that, that you would tell folks who are going back to maybe say a high school situation in a, in a, in a place without a lot of resources to be able to still um, make sure that they are infusing these, pro these processes, these practices within their work? Yeah. Oh, this is a great question because, you know, I, I talk a lot about an actor's right to expertise in relation to the thing we're trying to accomplish, right? Um, that if there is a, and I'll relate this to a scene of, of violence real quick, um, but if, if the script says, you know, uh, then Javert falls, um, then there's, there's a couple ways we can tell that story, right? Um, we can do a high fall, um, which will likely require a, a stunt expert or someone who knows how to set that up safely and a crash pad and great, lots of tools and lots of resources. We can also put uh, that actor in the middle of the stage and play with the lighting and sound and have the actor wave their arms around so that they look like they're falling. And we can use other tools at our disposal to tell that story. So I talk a lot about the difference between telling the story and doing a specific action. Um, and this is in regards to consent as well, right? Like I might consent to tell a story of a kiss. I might consent to tell a story of a punch. I might not give my consent to kiss or to punch, right? And in violence, we kind of get that already. We're like already assuming I'm not gonna be punched in the face. I'm just telling that story. But we can use those same tools for scenes of intimacy. We can stylize a kiss, we can mask a kiss. We can do all sorts of things to get that story told. Um, how I Learned to Drive has a great example. I mean, it, that play's got a lot going on, right? But uh, but it's got a great example of intimacy at the very beginning that is written as non-contact intimacy. It is hyper-stylized. The two characters are on separate sides of the stage um, and they're doing the actions forward and, imagine, or, and uh, acting as though those actions are being done to them. So that's a great example of telling the story but not engaging in a specific action. And so if you don't have an intimacy coordinator or intimacy director, that's totally fine. Just think about what and what tools you have at your disposal and, and what's the safest way you can get that story told, right? The answer to not having a fight choreographer isn't to just do the high fall and hope it goes well, <laughs> right? And the answer to not having an intimacy director isn't to just have the actors make out and hope no one gets hurt. Right, so, so we, we can work up to the level of expertise that we have in the room. And then specifically uh, in regards to like high school as well, there are a lot of complications there. Um, I'll do a quick pitch as well that my, uh, my organization is actually on the cusp of releasing um, a whole database of uh, resources for high school students, or sorry, high school instructors that are very specific to how to navigate consent and build a culture of consent in the high school classroom in which if you wanted to work on a kiss or wanted to work on a hug, there's tools to build that foundational culture first. So we're super, super excited because I think these tools are needed um, because you don't necessarily need an intimacy professional for every moment of intimacy, but it's really about working within your level of expertise. I've talked a lot. Do you want to add anything, Zeb? <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's like, specifically in the land of high school theater making, um, there's a lot to consider too, because you're generally working with minors. Um, there are laws against selling tickets to uh, watching un minors perform a quote unquote sex act. And there is a world in which kissing constitutes a sex act, especially if the style of the story is about burgeoning adolescence and hormones and you know like I, I don't think there's been actually any case of like a high school theater department being sued for child pornography in that way I don't think that's really the case but like we're not that far from that legal situation um so uh and then the other thing to yeah I was gonna say that there are certainly some kind of cultural pushes against it in other ways maybe not um that specifically but it certainly isn't outside the realm of possibility yeah and and also on the on the like sort of heartwarming side of it too you might very well be asking a student to uh perform a kiss on stage and that is their first kiss of their real life 
You know, that is a real situation. It is, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> it happens more than you think. Um, I would say uh, I've never been to an intimacy workshop where that hasn't been someone's experience. Yeah. Um, and so like uh, to even recognize that like that's on the table uh, to be able to speak to it, to know how to handle that situation. These are skills that high school theater instructors uh, all need to develop. And I, I have great confidence that they will develop it. These resources are there. The resources at the moment specifically geared towards high school instructors are scarce. But as Jessica said, that's part of the big reason why uh, their company is is uh, creating that content, which includes lesson plans and activities and and uh, resource documents. And so it will be, uh, I, I think that that culture shift will actually be quite swift because I think everyone can appreciate it. And as soon as the, as soon as the, the tools are more available um, and that they will be adopted well, can, so fast. Where can we go to, to learn a little bit? I mean, plug it, you guys just uh, throw it out there. Like, is there a website? Are there YouTube videos? Like what is there that's out there right now as we're recording this where uh, folks can get more information, can learn a little bit more, get some resources to help them out? Yeah, my organization is called Intimacy Directors and Coordinators. Uh, our website is idcprofessionals.com. Uh, that's also how you can find us on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, and, uh, you know, in three weeks, we're going to have information up about this resource portal. So this is this is breaking news, folks. Um, <laughs> you uh, heard it here first. <laughs> but so we'll, that'll be up on our website. Um, and uh, high schools and um, instructors will be able to uh, to get access to that content in the very, very near future. We also do workshops. Um, we've got certification workshops if you're interested in pursuing this professional or profession, um, but we also have general education workshops. We've got uh, consent for the K through 12 classroom. That's one we run really regularly as is. How long is that course? Uh, six weeks, but we're also looking at condensing that to a just two day weekend version, which I think um, my hope is, is that that will be much more accessible since, ooh, Summer is, is a stressful time for a lot of a lot of us, um, but but so we're we're looking to to continue having regular course offerings for um, stage managers, academics, and um, K through twelve instructors who might not be interested in fully pursuing certification but want to know these tools. It's worth noting too that right now through IDC, uh, all of these trainings are online trainings. Mm -hmm. um, ever since COVID started, uh, but they will be going back to being uh, in person as well, and at which well, point there will be uh, both both options available. Yeah, our we've one of the benefits has been accessibility of this information, um, and that pivot to online has uh, has been really inspiring and exciting. And so we're really thrilled to see how many people are engaging in this conversation um, and have been have been participating in this in this work. That's great. Um, and uh, just to kind of wrap up, you know, I, I hope that we're very much moving toward a world. I feel like most productions and any like legitimate theater professional would not try to stage violence without uh, somebody who knew what they were doing there. Um, and I hope that we're moving toward a world where uh, that the same is becoming true of intimacy, where there is at least like that now that people know these resources are available and this conversation is happening. Um, I think that that this is becoming a thing that people are taking um, much more seriously as a part of their larger practice. Um, and so uh, just to kind of wrap us up, um, I'm curious to know like if you what you see um, the the future of this discipline looking like, um, you know, whether that's like specific things or or if you have general things you'd like to see, but like what kinds of things can uh, the listeners like carry forward and, and kind of like, uh, look for or start to make happen in their own work? One thing that I definitely see happening is that uh, intimacy directors will still remain experts on this content, but won't be needed for as many moments as we're needed for right now. Uh, like in the same way that uh, you don't, if, if the actors know how to do the magic trick of throwing a non-contact slap, then you don't need a fight director to come in and choreograph a single slap. Uh, if they don't know how to do it, then you need to hire the person to give them the skill and then choreograph that one slap. Uh, I think the same is true of intimacy directors. You don't need an intimacy director for every kiss if you already know how to navigate consent and boundaries and check-ins and all the things that are around the kiss itself. Um, and then the intimacy director, in addition to still being a 
great expert resource on navigating consent and boundaries, the intimacy directors will <laughs> essentially get to work on the more complicated stuff and the, the dynamic and artistic storytelling of these intense, intimate moments. Um, and, uh, and I mean, right now, intimacy directors are, are seen as expert resources on consent and boundaries and navigating those things. Um, but what I see as the future is that everyone will already know how to do that part. Um, I'll also add that my lines for when an intimacy professional needs to be present is if there is any kind of nudity or any kind of simulated genital contact. If that is what you're, if that is the story you are telling, you need an intimacy professional. And then there is a little bit more gray room or gray gray area in um, like a, a heightened makeout scene or uh, a scene that's just getting really intense uh, in in its physicality, but it's might maybe not quite. Um, simulated sex or nudity, right? Those scenes, uh, nine times out of 10, I will say you should have an intimacy professional on. Um, and then there's scenes like kissing and hugging and familial intimacy that an intimacy professional can benefit and can support that. And especially if those tools are not um, present in the space, 100% needs to be there. Um, but there is this range, right, that we can't say like, this is you know, always when and always not when. Um, we also do have a flow chart on our website. It's in our resource packet um, that can be downloaded at our website and it'll help guide you through some questions about, okay, well, what's the scene? Ask this, ask this, ask this, and it'll tell you whether or not you should have an intimacy professional there. Um, and and that, that can be a really useful tool when you're thinking about budget. But again, working within your expertise, there are ways to tell every story that don't require an expert in the space. Um, you just have to be really aware of maybe that means it's going to be completely stylized. Maybe uh, if you're working from uh, with film, it's a shot of the door and we just hear some sounds, right? Like there are absolutely ways to tell that story. <laughs> Slow pan to the window. Correct, right? Um, there are ways to tell the story without necessarily needing that. And if you don't have the expertise, don't do the high fall. Yeah. <laughs> just don't do the high fall. I think that's a good place to tell. Sorry, Zev, go right ahead. I was yeah, going to say just, that's a good place um, to, to end it. Don't do the high ball, but. Uh, oh, I, you had me laughing at don't do the high fall. Now I forgot what I was going to say. Let's end on that petering out. How about that? I think, so. yeah, absolutely. I think so. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, re I remember. I remember. Okay, yeah, I, yeah. This one other piece of like what the future looks like is that uh, intimacy directors who are leading these workshops on how to navigate consent, how to declare your boundaries, how to practice saying no, how to pivot, that those kinds of lessons and learning will actually just become a part of regular actor training. Mm -hmm. And that you don't have to learn those things when you're working on a show with intimacy because you've learned them as a foundation of how to navigate being an actor. And then when the intimacy professional comes in the space, I just get to do the work of intimacy. Yeah. I don't have to do that foundational consent work or as much, right? I think right. it's always a good refresher, always a but yeah. what, but, a, what a game changer that but would yeah, be. That, that, uh, event, that we are right on the cusp of theater training becoming completely consent-based in everything we practice. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really good um, trajectory to make sure that we not only maintain, but we continue to push. So Jessica, Zev, thank you so much for joining us on the Teaching Drama Podcast. This has been it just immensely insightful and, and I think, I hope, so helpful for uh, people in our audience. So thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thanks for thank having you. us. This is a, a favorite conversation of mine. <laughs> Great, well, thank you both. That was just incredible. I'm so glad that Jessica and Zev joined us. I'm, I find that stuff so useful. Absolutely. I think this is a really important conversation to be having, and I'm really glad that this is the trend that is emerging in the field, and I think that it's going to make for better and safer theater practices everywhere. Um, so absolutely vital information and really glad to have them on today. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, Seth, so here as we wrap up uh, our new segment, what are you working on? So what are you... Uh, so I am preparing... Uh, some uh, monologues in these roles for this upcoming theater festival. Um, I am, uh, once again, I'm, I'm going to be teaching a class in playwriting and script analysis this summer through the Newberry Library. It's a virtual um, virtual class, so you can take it from anywhere in the country and visit the Newberry website, and I will also tweet uh, a link to it 
as well. Um, so you can register for that if you're interested. And I would love it if people would take it. Um, yeah, so preparing for those two things. Those are the, the two big things. I've just wrapped up a couple of articles and am now focused on uh, teaching and creative work right now. What about you? Well, I am finishing up a book that I'm writing a book review for on uh, theater and justice during the French Revolution, which is a really fascinating book, and I can't wait to write the review and just a little uh, preview. It's good. Good book. Definitely read it. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll give more information about that later through my Twitter feed so you can check it out there. Uh, I also got a book chapter that I'm working on that is on performance in the Latin liturgy and reception of the of performing the Latin liturgy in the Middle Ages. Really exciting stuff, I know. There's just an immense audience for that kind of thing. <laughs> but nonetheless, I, I, it, I, I do find it really fascinating, and I think that there's a lot to be said about it, particularly because we focus too much on the the you know the named individuals of history, where most of the, re, the most of the re, recorded reception of the liturgy, a lot of it comes from these nameless, kind of faceless communities of from monasteries and, and cathedral schools that often get kind of lost and marginalized in our histories of, of theater and performance in the Middle Ages. So I'm really excited about that. But um, yeah, and, and I want to encourage everyone to interact with us. The, this actual topic, um, you know, Seth and I have been thinking about it for a little while, but at the same time, we were really spurred by some folks who, who talked, who gave us the, uh, the you know, reached out to us saying, we want to hear about intimacy direction. We want to hear, hear about these uh, choreographies and these designing uh, we can have information about it. So we appreciate those of you who did reach out to us. Uh, Seth, tell the good people what your Twitter handle is. I am at Seth Wish. And I'm at Kyle underscore A underscore Thomas. Our handle for the podcast is just teaching at teaching score in there but we changed it because it was a lot easier just to do it without so uh reach out to us please tweet at us please let us know what you want to hear about in our upcoming episodes and people that we might want to interview so reach out to us we love hearing from you absolutely um, seth tell all the good people goodbye bye everybody have a great uh rest of your june and we'll see you back here next month absolutely thank you everyone this has been the teaching drama podcast